You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. For more information, visit studylegalenglish.com. Hello and welcome to the Study Legal English podcast. I'm your host Louise and today I've got a great interview for you to listen to with a guy who is doing brilliant things in the field of law and legal English education. It is Daniel Edelson. More about him in a minute. Before we get started, I have a few announcements. Firstly, that the day after I recorded this interview over Skype, I slipped a disc in my back. I've been out of it for a few weeks, completely not able to move. Luckily, I'm on the road to recovery, so thank you to those of you who sent me very kind messages on social media. If you are on Instagram or Facebook, then you can find me, just search for at Legal Englisher. It's your chance to ask me questions related to legal English on Instagram or Facebook. You can receive exclusive content, which I only post on social media. Lots of tips about studying legal English. And although I have been a bit quiet over the past couple of weeks due to my injury, I am now back on it. So do connect with me on social media. Secondly, if you subscribe to my newsletter, you will have received an email within the past few days with exclusive tips about learning legal English. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you receive these tips. You don't get them anywhere else. So if you are not subscribed, then go to studylegalenglish.com forward slash news to receive updates about the best of the best legal English resources, resources that I recommend, stuff that I've discovered each month. One last announcement is that for podcast pro members only, you get two bonus episodes related to this podcast interview. The first one is where I summarise the most important points from this episode. And this is helpful if you're in a hurry and you want to get the most important information in the shortest amount of time. Or of course, if you've listened to the episode and then you want to listen again, but perhaps to the main points, you should listen to the bonus episode all about the summary of the episode. Then there's another episode related solely to the vocabulary used, where I cover some of the differences between the language that Daniel uses. He uses a lot of US legal English because, of course, he is a US attorney. And I tell you the British equivalents, as well as explaining some of the terms that he uses in the interview. So now let's get started. Who is Daniel Edelson? Daniel is a US attorney. He runs his own law practice, the Law Offices of Daniel Edelson in New Jersey, New York. He works on a range of business litigation matters, including breach of contract, fraud and shareholder disputes. Very exciting stuff. He is an adjunct professor at St. John's Law School, where he teaches law and legal English. And I have to say a big thank you to Stephen Horowitz, who has also been on the show, who used to work at St. John's Law, for introducing me to Daniel, because he's a very great contact to have. He also teaches legal English online and at various institutions. So if you are interested in learning legal English online, which hopefully a lot of you out there are, then do get in touch with him. 
you can contact him on his email, which is daniel at uslawessentials.com. Of course, I'll leave any contact details, any links that we mention in the show in the show notes. Daniel also does webinars on the fundamentals of US law. You can find those on his website, uslawessentials.com. He presents webinars for attorneys, law students, translators, and all kinds of legal professionals from all around the world interested in different legal topics, US law essentials, business contracts, and much, much more. One thing that will be super interesting for you listeners is that he runs a YouTube channel called US Law Essentials. So, of course, you can head over to his website, uslawessentials.com. You can also search for that on YouTube and you'll find an amazing channel which has got loads of animated videos on specific law topics. They are really engaging and I highly recommend you check them out, especially if you're studying law in the US or you're interested in becoming an attorney in the US or you've got clients who do business in the US. Very, very important channel there. The videos are helpful for people learning legal English and also for teachers who are looking for fun videos to engage their students. I've used some of Daniel's videos in my own lessons so I can vouch for them from experience. They go down well in classes. So in this interview we talk about Daniel's experience as a lawyer and a teacher, his tips for students and law professionals studying legal English and if you stay until the end you'll hear about some helpful resources Daniel recommends for studying. So don't drop off halfway through make sure you listen right until the end. So now let's go straight to that interview. Happy listening. Hi, Daniel. Hi there. How are you? All good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Good. Perfect. I'm very happy to have you on the show. So, Daniel, can you explain a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today, a bit more about what you do, because you do lots of things? Sure. Um, I I wish I could say it was all um, really carefully planned out, but it, it wasn't. I first got interested in teaching English when I, before I became a lawyer. I had been living in Japan I did some English teaching while I was there, and I had actually liked Japan so much I was even thinking of um, trying to go back there as an attorney. So I came back to the U.S., became a lawyer, and of course one thing leads to another. I was uh, working as a as an attorney in New York City for about for about ten years. It was after practicing for about ten years that I moved to South Korea with my family, and I was teaching. U.S. law at a university in South Korea. And it was while I was teaching there that I started to think back on my days teaching English, where I'd always try to put up little doodles on the blackboard, and I was now making little doodles on my PowerPoint or keynote presentations. And I realized that no matter how horrible my visuals were, it was always a little better to have a visual than to not have a visual. So since returning to the US, I've continued to try to make videos and other visual content to help explain aspects of US law. 
and I found that I was actually teaching legal English without realizing that I was teaching legal English. Very nice. You kind of gave quite a nutshell there of your experience and you've got a really interesting background like traveling to Japan, South Korea, and it seems that you sort of fell into legal English, which a lot of teachers do. And you mentioned that you use visuals and that visuals are really, really helpful. And I really agree with that as well. So let's talk a little bit about things that you think that are helpful for students studying legal English. You mentioned their visuals. What other specific things do you feel are helpful for students? I guess for me, part of it is I really look at how I learn things. And I would say that it would be accurate to say that I typically learn things very poorly. I've never been a, a really great student. But what I found was that I could teach myself certain things, but I always needed to have some sort of practical way of seeing what I was trying to learn. And I should add, of all the subjects that I'm bad at, art would certainly be one of them. I've never been, I've never had really good visual skills, but I do kind of like having tangible examples. So by way of example, when I studied civil procedure in law school, I was, I was really a, just um, not a very good student at all. So, for example, in law school, in civil procedure, we would learn what a U.S. complaint is, what a U.S. answer to a complaint is, what a U.S. motion is. And it wasn't until I started practicing law that I actually saw these things firsthand and I could actually touch them and read them and experience them. And that was how I could actually figure out what these things really are. And that informed me as I was trying to teach students who, many of whom did not have very good English, but all of whom had very little understanding of U.S. law. And I'm not saying that to denigrate them, it's just there, there's no reason why they should have. And I applied my same learning method, which is I only really understood it when I could actually see it and, and touch it. So Besides for just a visual representation, for example, on a, on a slide, one thing that I try to carry into my own classes that I teach now are very real, tangible examples of the things that we are talking about. So instead of talking about a complaint, but to actually present to students, well, here are examples of complaints in a U.S. civil litigation. Great. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know that sometimes, you know, if you're talking about particular legal documents, even the structure of a contract, for example, you can talk about the structure of a contract and and uh, explain what the structure of a contract is, or you can simply show the contract. And as soon as uh, a student actually sees this real live document in front of you, it just makes things so much easier. And so bringing those into your classes are certainly helpful. And I know that you also do that on your YouTube channel, which is very, very helpful. So this first point is to bring in, make things visual, 
And so for learners, maybe a tip there is that, you know, if they are struggling with trying to understand something, then they should try to seek out a visual example of, of what it actually is rather than try to look for a description of it online. Very helpful tip. Any other points? Sure. I think another way to approach this is also um, in terms of tangible examples it can also be not just a visual representation, but also even text can be a really useful example to work with. So as you were saying, and I, I think you're absolutely right, for example, US contracts, and I, I believe British contracts have preambles. So I think most people would agree that it's, it's not too difficult to tell people about a preamble and most people would have a basic understanding based on the description. But of course, showing instead of telling would be even better. So at that point, you're showing someone some text. And here's an example of a preamble. What I would encourage people to do is to find different examples of that same thing. So if you're in a legal English class, your instructor might present you with actual examples and what I would encourage people to do is to notice the similarities and the differences among these examples in the contract. So it's not just a question of, well, this is, um, this is exactly what a preamble is, but instead, well, here are actual preambles to a contract. What do I notice that different people writing the contract are doing and writing within, within, this, within this preamble? Yeah, so looking at different examples, seeing what's the same, what's different, and how can that help students with their legal English? I think the way it can, can help students is the, the process of, of noticing, I think is a skill that students can learn where they really pay attention to how people are using the language. And what makes, I guess, legal English at times a little tricky is there's formalities and conventions. And even within the what we would call the plain English movement, where people are trying to get away from some of the less helpful formalities or conventions, there's still always going to be certain formalities that contracts follow. And I think by noticing these different examples, one can get sort of the, the parameters of where one can go with the language. So what does absolutely no one ever do in a contract? What have you just never, ever seen in a contract? Well, that's a good indication that maybe it's not there because it's just either incorrect or it's not done or there's some sort of risk with using that kind of language. And for me, that process of noticing is also a good way just to encourage questions and asking, well, why is that here? Perhaps you're a translator and you would notice some language being used in a contract that doesn't normally get translated. 
it's some sort of archaic term that doesn't have any specific or useful meaning once it's translated. Well, why is it there then? Why do some contracts have it? And I think that noticing process and then following up with some questioning is a good way of building up very active or practical legal English ability. Do you think that this can be done through self-study or do you think it needs a teacher to guide the student with it? That's a really good question. For me, I know the answer is I would need a teacher. I have met or read about people who are just really, really good at language. So I've, I've known people who, and I don't know really how they do it, but they seem to just talk to people in a different language. They get a dictionary and then suddenly they're performing really well. I know for myself, I've never been good at foreign languages, so I don't think I could do it. And I would think especially with something like legal English, if you're, if you're a translator or an attorney, you'd at least want to bounce your ideas off of someone else. So in that sense, I think having an instructor is really good. On the other hand, there's all sorts of things that I think people can do on their own to improve their, to, to improve their English. I, I think I agree with you uh, about needing a teacher to do this kind of exercise because one of the dangers, like noticing is a really powerful learning technique and I'm glad that you brought that up. But there could potentially be a danger if you get some examples of really badly drafted contracts, which potentially then had a history of of being, you know, creating conflicts between the parties and then being litigated. And you know, you <laughs> know the story of the contract if you find an example on the online, and if you particularly maybe don't have a great level of legal English if you're just starting out and you start noticing things within the contract and you start noticing like, ooh, this contract's doing this and using this language. And, you know, you think that it's a really great style to replicate when in actual fact a teacher might be able to guide you and say, well, you know, honestly, you know, there was case law on that and it's not a great way to write or something like that. But you, you mentioned that, you know, there are some things maybe that students could do on their own. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and you bring up a great example. I mean, contracts, just going back to what you just said, contracts are a great example of this because I think every attorney knows that having templates is the greatest thing in the world. Everyone needs a template. On the other hand, if you just copy a template, we all know what can happen when you're just copying uh, something else to notice is uh, you also brought up like sort of these negative examples, which is can also be noticed. Like I'm avoiding your question for a second, but uh, you brought up really a bunch of interesting points. Like sometimes showing people stuff that's not so great can be terrific. You know, noticing how this might be a problem. For example, I've worked with students showing them an arbitration clause that was then followed by a mandatory you know, litigation in court with a form selection clause, and the two are absolutely contradictory. Well, can students notice this? It's difficult because you could be a, a seasoned attorney quickly drafting a document and you might miss it. Something else that can be a risk in terms of just noticing things and immediately adopting it without getting some feedback would be even sometimes when people bend rules, they do it because they're really good at it and they've been doing it for a long time. I had an experience where I was teaching students, okay, this is how to do an oral argument. And I gave students the formula. 
And then we sort of sat down and we started listening to oral arguments. And I realized, oh, wait a second. None of the real attorneys are following my formula. And I think it's sort of interesting to note, well, once you have this sort of basic background, how do people go ahead and change it? But what, what, is, what's, what are the basics that you can use to avoid any problem and then improve on it, if that makes sense? I guess kind of like most jazz musicians already know classical music. Yeah. So there are things that you can do like on your own, which would be to, you know, you can notice inconsistencies within a contract. You can notice some of the things which maybe are a little bit ambiguous, like sometimes as a non-native speaker, it's you you might be unsure whether it's it's that you don't understand the writing or you might be able to see that well actually it's just unclear which i think is an important point for for non-native speakers if you are reading something if you're reading a complicated document and you don't understand it don't presume that it's your lack of english skills <laughs> sometimes and quite often is the case you know native english speakers also really don't have a clue what the the writer was trying to convey there so good and you mentioned to find examples you know that students could bring to class some examples or the teacher can find examples of contracts or other documents where would you recommend or where do you recommend your students get those from as a teacher I normally bring examples. So in terms of resources on where one can find these documents, I think it depends on what types of tools the students have. Certainly, there's a lot of material just publicly available on the internet. So one can always Google and find examples. Some sources that I think would be helpful if students are looking for examples of, say, legal writing. Certainly the Supreme Court of the United States, if you're looking for briefs that were submitted to the Supreme Court of the United States, and usually these are going to be well-written briefs, you can find um, on the Supreme Court's website, you can find examples of briefs that have been submitted. If you have access to Westlaw or Lexis, there's also a lot of examples of memoranda of law that have been submitted to the court. So that can be a useful resource. If you're looking for examples of contracts, again, you can find a lot of those documents online. Just be careful because these are going to be, often there'll be templates. Um, So using them for educational purposes, I think is a great idea but don't necessarily assume that this is the world's greatest contract. It might be, but it, it, it might not be. Good. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned some helpful points there, helpful databases. Do you have any other tips for students studying legal English? One tip that I found really helpful, and, and I have to say I'm really grateful to some of the um, instructors that I've worked with, and looking at some of the great techniques that they use. Encouraging students to rephrase as they're just going about their their daily life. And I'm thinking of this in particular because I'm working with a, a group of students online now who happen to have 
really, really good English. Their fundamental English is, is just really strong. But even for them, the practice of taking words that they've learned, but then substituting other words for it can get difficult. And it might in fact be the case that this is really important for anybody who's using English for a professional purpose. But I do see it as really useful for law students. So just by way of example, if you're living in a, in a country other than a country where English is the first language, you might, for example, see a sign or you might see a, a newspaper headline. Well, I would encourage people, well, translate that into English. Now, try to explain that in, in different words. And if you're finding that you only have one word for something, if you have that, and here's where I can only do this visually, where you, but I'm trying to explain that feeling you have when your brain knows what it is, but you just don't know how to put it exactly into words. So if this were on video, you would see me using my hands kind of shaking back and forth. And I've noticed everyone does this, where it's sort of inside your head, just not coming out your mouth. That kind of skill, I think, is really important because one thing I've noticed is Sometimes people have their favorite words, and these words are often very, very useful, and even if it's not exactly right, everyone understands it, and that's great. But especially as people are getting stronger and stronger in their legal English, they don't just want to hear, oh, yes, I understand you. They want to know that they're using the exact precise language that perhaps native speakers are using. And the process of explaining things in different words is a really good way of building that vocabulary and using the precise language. And I was thinking of this the other day with this online class of students who have very strong English, but some of them have their favorite phrase, and that phrase or that uh, word doesn't always work in different contexts. So, for example, sometimes lawyers say, according to the contract, according to the statute, dot, 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 dot. And according to is great. I love according to. Everyone uses according to. And we can use according to for people. According to the police officer, dot, 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 dot. Well, how comfortable are students using a phrase such as under, as in under the contract, dot, 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 under the statute, dot, 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 dot. Are students comfortable using provides? as in the contract provides X, Y, Z. Now we all know that we can't say for a human, the human provides that uh, it is illegal to, or the human provides that the defendant was running away. We'd have to say, according to the police officer, the defendant was running away. Well, these words all have very similar meanings, but are you comfortable using them in these different contexts. And I think being comfortable with using these different words is a, is a great way of building legal English vocabulary, not just for your own use, but recognizing when it's being used by other attorneys, lawyers, and students and judges. That's a really good point, especially because for lawyers, I think it's a really essential skill, even more so than just general English speakers, because lawyers on a regular basis have to explain things in different ways 
to different types of clients. Maybe you've got a, you know, just a regular person as a client or perhaps a business person. And depending on your client, you're going to have to explain things using a slightly different language, language which is different to the type of language that you use with your lawyer colleagues. And so it's a really essential skill to develop. And in terms of Europe, it's also a this this skill of rephrasing and explaining things in a different way is actually part of the assessment within the, the European Union of the, the language assessment of how we assess the different levels that you have. It's called mediation. And so depending on whether you can explain something in a clear way can actually mean that you, you have a, a better level than perhaps someone who might have loads of, I don't know, all the correct grammar, but then is not able to explain something in a slightly different way because it's a really essential skill. You might have loads of vocabulary, you might have the good grammar, but if you can't be flexible with your approach of using the language, then you're not a good communicator. And you made the point that that students can practice this by, you know, just taking something from your everyday life, a sign or a newspaper headline or, you know, whatever you see and just try to explain it in a slightly different way. So Good, very nice point. This brings up also in different ways of saying things. It, it just got me thinking about summarizing as, as a skill. And the, your description of um, the, the, that process of mediation sounds enormously valuable. And it occurs to me that in a U.S. law class where a lot of the teaching is through questions and answers, it's, it's similar I, It's similar to that, I think. But one skill to think about when one is using these different language is also, how can I summarize the point in different ways? So for example, if you can take a portion of the Constitution, you could probably practice, and this is something we've done in class, is, well, can you summarize this in one sentence? Can you summarize it in one paragraph. And I think that kind of skill is really important because if you can explain it in five pages, maybe, maybe that's okay. And there's times when we do have to explain things in five pages, but if you can't summarize it, that's sort of an issue. And what I noticed teaching students from other countries about US law is oh, a lot of what I was doing in law school was just summarizing things, summarizing basic principles, and then depending on the circumstances, expanding on it. And that's exactly what I'm doing as a lawyer. But I never, I never really heard that term used when I was studying, like, okay, learn how to summarize this. But I think that's what a lot of law students and lawyers really do. Yeah, it's a difficult skill, even if you're a native speaker. And uh, I think a true test of whether you actually know what you're talking about is whether you can put it into a succinct manner. So moving on, we've discussed a few resources in relation to examples where students can find examples in order for them to then notice and use those as a tool to notice what's actually happening in those documents. Do you have any other recommendations for resources for people studying legal English? 
Sure. I think what students might find helpful, especially if you're if you're law students, but I guess this would work also if you're if you're a practitioner. Law school students' memoranda are often uh, very helpful because by the time they get online, they've been edited and organized really heavily. So you could even look at examples from law school moot court competitions. And this is useful because you'll be looking at what a law school student has been told is proper legal writing. And very often these memoranda of law are very good. And you can find examples where students have submitted these to moot court competitions and they have a some sort of written submission as well. Again, you know, note that sometimes you can find examples that aren't great. Sometimes you can find examples where students have maybe less proficient English. But again, you can notice how are these students being taught to organize their memoranda of law. And going back to the whole noticing, notice how these students have been taught to organize their briefs. And you can then find examples of actual memorandum of law that have been submitted to courts. And do you notice any differences? Do some attorneys try to be a little bit more cute or do they try to be funny? Do some of the attorneys try to have fewer examples of citations because they're so confident in their point? How do different um, practitioners use umbrella paragraphs? When do attorneys suddenly break a rule that perhaps you were taught where you were taught to only use active sentences? Did someone use a passive sentence? Did you find it less convincing than an active sentence? And so I think that would be another example. Something that someone has told me that they've done is they've used some of my YouTube videos and they've had students write down what I say. And I, I'm not trying to encourage people to do that because one of the one of my reactions was, oh, extreme embarrassment. Because I know there's times where I'll say something and I'll think, you know, I can find exceptions to that. And I often use terms like, well, generally, usually. And so if you wanted to, for example, write down the things that I'm saying or what someone else is saying in a YouTube video, I think, well, you can notice, well, what kind of language do people use when they're trying to explain or summarize a point of law? Where do you see me going wrong? Where do you see other people using more sophisticated or less sophisticated language? So I think that that can also be a skill in just hearing how people talk about the law. Very good point. And I know that you've got a really helpful video on writing a memorandum. I put up one video, I think it was a couple months ago, so it'd be early 2020, and I called it Writing the Persuasive Memorandum of Law Part 1. It's on my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. something like that. And if people find that helpful, I'd be, I'd be really happy. That's probably the longest video I've put on YouTube. And it was the first time that I actually went through step-by-step step on a skill that a law school student should have. And I created it based on my conversations with students in U.S. law schools who came from other countries and who didn't have much experience writing any formal 
English or had lib- limited experience writing uh, academic English and were suddenly thrust into this position of preparing a persuasive memorandum of law in law school. And it was interesting to me to notice the difficulties that they were having with how the assignment was being presented to them. And that's not to fault um, the instructor, but it's simply um, a way of noticing for me, well, how would I have liked to learn it? How do I think people who don't speak English as a first language can better learn how to write a persuasive memo? And perhaps how some of these same skills can be helpful for native speakers. It's a helpful video. And I know that it is one of your longest videos on your channel. A lot of your videos are, you know, really short and concise and super easy for students to watch and legal professionals to watch because they're so short and um, concise and to the point. And when you mentioned there that, that some people use your videos to notice the language and that a lot of the time you're using things like generally or generally speaking. And, um, well, that's what you have to do if you're summarizing something, because if you're not going into total detail there and you are summarizing, then of course it's, you're going to be talking in the general sense because you're not going to be talking about this is the rule and then this is the exception. You're going to give this kind of overview. So I certainly wouldn't criticize you on that. I think it's a really helpful thing to be doing there. Okay, great, Daniel. You've mentioned loads of stuff. You've talked about how powerful real examples can be for students, how students can notice things in real documents and notice the differences between similar documents, the different writing techniques. You've talked about rephrasing and summarizing, and you've also mentioned some resources. I put on my Instagram that I was interviewing a US attorney and I welcomed my followers to get in touch with the question. So I've got a question for you, which came through and it is, is it difficult for foreign lawyers to qualify as an attorney in the US? Statistically, I guess I would have to say Yes, because the bar passage rate for attorneys from countries other than the United States is lower than the bar passage rate for American students graduating from American law schools. So I I suppose the answer is statistically, it is a bit difficult. On the other hand, I've seen a number of students from our LLM program at St. John's University School of Law, who go ahead and pass the bar. So I think the answer is the writing component, and this is, again, a generalization, there are some essay questions. That seems to be problematic for most students. There's the multiple choice section, and I'm not exactly sure, but it seems as though people have less difficulty with the multiple choice section than with the, the essay portion. And it's funny that the, the question makes me think, my, my immediate reaction was, no, it's easy, because I've looked at the bar passage rates of people in other countries, and it seems like their bar exam is much more difficult than ours, where only a very limited percentage of students can possibly hope to pass the bar. So I think my other answer would be, 
don't worry about those statistics. I have a funny feeling the person who asked this question is going to do just great. <laughs> you know, if you're dedicated and you study and uh, you're, you're going to get there, and if you do, if you are a foreign lawyer who wants to qualify as an attorney in the US, then of course, set some goals and achieve them. And certainly check out Daniel's YouTube video to help you get there. <laughs> Well, well, I, I yeah. <laughs> You're too modest. Um, good. Okay. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been very helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Great. So that's the end of that interview. I hope you found it useful and learned something new. Don't forget to check out Daniel's website, uslawessentials.com and his fantastic YouTube channel. If you've got any questions for him, do contact him at daniel at uslawessentials.com and I'll leave those links in the show notes. Finally, don't forget to connect with me on social media if you're not already. Just search for at Legal Englisher. And if you're a podcast pro member, check out that bonus content. I think you're going to find it incredibly helpful. You do not want to be using these terms incorrectly. These bonus episodes tell you how to use certain terms in very specific ways. So lucky you. So thank you for listening today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Study Legal English podcast. If you really want to get ahead, why not become a member and gain access to many learning resources? Visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash pricing.